The text for the sermon is John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. It's John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would teach us about your love tonight. Make us God-taught people. May I be a mouthpiece faithful to the written, inspired word and thus the voice of the living God. Make plain the magnificence of your many-faceted love. Forbid that we would bring to the Word our small, fallible, flawed conceptions of love and make you mean what we mean. May we be humble and learn from your clear teaching. Come now and speak, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people are new at Bethlehem. Some just stop by to see what's going on. And many do not have an experience or an understanding of what we mean by preaching. So, when I contemplated the nature of this sermon, I thought I should spend a few minutes at the front, every now and then, like now, saying what we mean by preaching, so that you can decide if you think this is a good idea. Preaching at Bethlehem can be summed up in two words, expository Exaltation. That's exaltation with a U, not an A. Exaltation. Expository means that preaching aims to exposit or explain and apply the meaning of the Bible. The reason for this is that the Bible is God's Word. Infallible, inspired, profitable, in all of its 66 books. The preacher's job is to minimize his own opinions. 
and to explain what the Bible says and apply it to people's lives. The preacher's job is to do that in a way that enables you to see in the Bible where his opinions come from. Because if you don't see where they come from in the Bible, you will in the long run wind up putting your faith in a man and not in God's Word. The aim of that kind of expository preaching is to help you eat and digest biblical truth that will make your spiritual bones more like steel and will double the capacity of your spiritual lungs and will make the eyes of your heart dazzled with the brightness of the glory of God and will awaken the capabilities of your soul to experience kinds of spiritual joy you did not know existed. Second, preaching is expository exaltation, which means that the preacher does not just explain what's in the Bible, and the people who are listening do not simply try to understand what is being explained. Rather, the preacher and the people exult over this word. They exult over what they are seeing in the Bible. Preaching does not, in the order of the service, come after worship. It is worship. I am worshiping over the Word, trying my best to draw you in to a worshipful response to His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. My job is not simply to see truth and show it to you. The devil could do that for his own devious reasons. My job is to do what the devil cannot do, namely, to see the glory of the truth and to savor the glory of the truth and exult over the glory of the truth as I explain it and apply it to you in the hopes that God would enable you to do the same. That's one of the differences between a sermon and a lecture. Preaching is not the totality of the church. If all you have in your church experience is preaching, you don't have the church. The church is a body of people who minister to each other in a hundred ways with their various gifts. And one of the purposes of preaching is to equip you to do that and inspire you and motivate you to love each other better because pastors can't do it. God has ordained that the church flourish under this kind of preaching. Which is why Paul gave the most 
serious, exalted charge in all the Bible to young Pastor Timothy like this. This is 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. That's a weighty charge. So, (laughs) newer person, if you're used to a 20-minute, immediately practical, relaxed talk, what I have just described to you won't lead you there. I've preached twice that long. I do not aim to be immediately practical, but eternally helpful. And I am not relaxed. I am feeling myself in my soul on the brink of a precipice called eternity speaking to people, any one of whom might go over that edge at any moment. Ready or not. And I will be called to account for what I said there. That's what we mean by preaching. Now, the issue in this message is what does the love of God in John 3.16 mean? So I hope your Bibles are still open. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it is so important that we not bring our native preconceptions, not learned from the Bible of love, to the Bible to make the Bible mean what we think love means. We should humble ourselves and ask, what do you mean, God? Help me with the wider context and the fullness of your revelation to know what you mean by loving us in this verse. There are a few great things that are very obvious, are they not? Number one, God loves the world. I'm leaning on last week's message heavily. God loves the world. That is, He loves the great totality of fallen human beings, all of them. Number two, this love is of such a kind, such an intensity, such a magnitude, that it moved him to give his son to die for the world. Number three, one incontestable purpose and effect of that love is whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In other words, this love opens the door so that anyone who believes will have eternal life. Number four, therefore, 
This love is indiscriminate. It may be spoken to, promised to, applied to everyone without exception. Because that is what it says. Love says, according to this verse, If you will believe in my Son, I will give you eternal life. I can do that justly because my Son canceled the debts of all who believed so that if you will believe, your debts are canceled. My love for you is this. I gave my Son so that by merely trusting Him as the only condition, you would live with me in joy forever. Therefore, we may say to every human being, God loves you. And this is how He loves you. He gave His Son to die so that if you would believe, your sins would be forgiven and you will live with Him forever. That's the way to preach John 3.16. Personally or in a pulpit. So that's what the love of God in John 3.16 means, promises, does. It's why this verse has been used of God so amazingly to save millions of people. It expresses what we love to call the free offer of the gospel. I love the free offer of the gospel. There are no limits to this offer. It applies to every ethnic group, every age, every socioeconomic category, and best of all, every degree of sinner. From the bad to the worst. Because there aren't any other kind. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever indiscriminate, universal, believes in Him, should not perish, but have eternal life. So what's so controversial about that? Nothing! Unless you try to take that glorious meaning of John 3.16 and use it to cancel other kinds of love in the Bible. Which is what many people do. And it is a great sadness. And it hurts the church and robs her of one of her great treasures. Let me describe for you three other expressions of the love of God besides this one that are clear in the Bible. Um, 
Before I do that, I'm going to hold this book up. I mentioned it last time. This is Don Carson, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Uh, these three loves that I'm about to open, uh, he opens. And the one in John 3:16. This is very helpful, very readable, very biblical. I recommend it. Number one, the first two we'll go over very quickly. Third, we will linger on. God loves his son, and the son loves the father. John 3:35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John 14:31, I do as my father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Now, what's different about the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father compared to the love in John 3.16 or God's love for you is that He loves you in spite of you. He does not love His Son in spite of His Son. There are no obstacles to love in Jesus or in the Father. They are infinitely worthy to be loved. We are not. God must get over great obstacles to love us. And he does. Number two. God loves his creation and sustains it with his care, even for the use of his enemies. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is over all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus commands us, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. I got up with Noel the other morning and opened the blinds, and the sun was pouring in, and I have a crystal clear view of the whole downtown of Minneapolis from my second floor bedroom window and I said to Noel, he did it again. He did it again. Amazing love. This city should burn. And he makes the sun rise day after day after day for his enemies. Amazing. That's number two. Nobody uses John 3.16 to cancel either of those. Here's number three. The most precious experience of the love of God has not been mentioned in this sermon yet. It isn't John 3.16. It isn't his love for the creation. It isn't his making the sunrise on his enemies. And it isn't his love for each other. For us, the most amazing love is his covenant love, his 
choosing a people for himself and bringing them to faith and making them personally his forever. To know yourself loved this way is the greatest experience of all. And many Christians have been taught not to receive this love or to believe that it exists, which is a great tragedy. You could call this love electing love or regenerating love or covenant love. With this love, God goes way beyond the offer of John 3.16 in loving you. He overcomes your rebellion. He overcomes your resistance. He conquers you. Makes you his. So let me try to show you this from the Bible. Since you should not take my word for it. Or anyone else's. But only God's. I'll give it to you in uh, maybe three places, three ways. I am trying to show you a way that God loves his own that is magnificently greater than John 3.16. Number one, we see this in God's election of the people of Israel. Why don't you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Genesis, first book in the Bible. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. About 190 pages in in my Bible. From the front. Deuteronomy 10. Verses 14 and 15. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all the peoples as you are this day. God did not offer anything to Israel before he made them his own. He made them his own unilaterally. He took them for himself. He did not negotiate. He did not look for a qualified people. He sovereignly conquered the moon worshiper Abraham and made him his own. Turn back to chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. 7, 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. It was because the Lord loves you. Why did He love them? He loved them because He loved them. Period. If you go looking for an explanation in Abraham as a ground of this election, you will dishonor God's love very much. This is what we call electing love. This is not an offer. Number two. We see this kind of love in God's raising us from the dead spiritually and causing us to be born again. Back to John 3. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's he saying about the new birth there? We are born of the Spirit that way. That is, we are born of the Spirit at the will of the Spirit, at the will of the wind of the Spirit. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. You can't control the wind. You can't control the Spirit. You are born again by God's sovereign breath. You don't make it happen any more than you make the wind blow. This is called in the Bible great love. Let me give you a place or two where it's called great love. You want to go to with, with me to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's letter, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. God, being rich in mercy, because of the, here's the phrase, great love with which He loved us, did what? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. You did not do that. God did that. And everything you did happened after that. Your faith, your love, your obedience, your repentance are not the work of a dead man. They are the work of a living being that God made alive sovereignly. This is the way you are loved, believer. This is the fiber in your bone, if you know this. 
This is the steel in your spine. This is your unshakable confidence when everything seems coming down in your life. If all you know is an offer, you don't know enough. You don't know enough. Um, 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He caused us to be born again. So that phrase, great mercy, is the same as Ephesians 2.5, great love. By great love He raised you from the dead. By great mercy He caused you to be born again. This is the greatness of love. Love coming to its unbelievably glorious apex in your life as God takes you for His own. Do you know yourself loved like that? What a sweet experience. Not to know that is to be very fragile. Finally, number three, the third way to see this kind of love. Is to stay right here in the Gospel of John and to ask Jesus to talk to you about how um, he understands his sheep. Who are God's sheep? Who are the sheep of his flock? Who are the sheep of the flock of Jesus? In the rest of the Gospel of John, here's the surprising discovery for most American Christians. The relationship between being a sheep of Christ and believing on Christ is not that we believe in order to become a sheep, but that God makes us a sheep so that we can believe. That surprises people because thousands teach against it to the great detriment of the church. So I'm going to show you this. It is crystal clear. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 25. John 10 25 and 26. Jesus says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. It does not say you're not part of my flock because you do not believe. It says the reverse. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You must first be made part of his flock so that you can believe. 
So, we don't first believe in order to become a sheep of Jesus. God makes us sheep so that we are enabled then to believe. So, look at verse 11 of John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now we know, having read verses 25 and 26, that means more than John 3.16. He lays down his life for the sheep means not just to offer the sheep eternal life, but to make absolutely certain they will believe and follow and have eternal life. The cross secures for the sheep their sheepness makes them his own. Jesus looks beyond the present fold of believers and he says in verse 16, you can look at it, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. God knows those who are his. And the death of Christ secures their coming. In John eleven fifty one and 52, Caiaphas, unwittingly speaking, prophetically, talks about the aim and purpose of the death of Christ. And John explains that Christ died in order to gather into one the children of God who are scattered. That's the effect of the blood of Christ, the work of Jesus. Drop your eyes down or back to 1027, and you will feel now the massive foundation underneath these most precious words of security. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. That's how you know they are sheep. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and nobody will snatch them out of my hand. You talk about security and precious assurance. It begins in the everlasting electing love of God to take us for His own. And it is bought by the blood of Jesus. And it is secured by the hand of the Almighty. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And it is finished. Oh, to know yourself in that golden chain that cannot be broken. So, why do they come? Why do people come to Jesus? They come because the Father has chosen them and given them to Jesus. John 6. Want to go back with me to chapter 6? as long as you're putting your eyeballs on the very Word of God and not giving a rip about what I think, I hope. 
John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's who comes. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Drop your eyes down to verse 44. 644. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Drop your eye down to verse 65. John 6, 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. This being brought to Jesus is a kind of love that is great love beyond the offer of eternal life. The securing of you in eternal life. The making of you to be one of His own and holding you there. Why doesn't everybody believe the good news of John 3.16? Let's go to John 3.16 and look at the context and read the answer that Jesus gives in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 of John 3. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. The answer given at the last judgment for why anyone didn't come will be they hated the light. That will be the last answer. They hated the light. It wasn't attractive. Television was attractive. Money was attractive. Fame was attractive. Sex was attractive. Food was attractive. Family was attractive. Walks in the sunshine was attractive. Making a name by building a hospital was attractive. Jesus and His way and His sovereign glorious love was not attractive. The light had no effect on a dead blind, rebellious, guilty, resistant heart. That's why people don't come. And we were all born that way. More amazing is the question why any of us comes, not why we don't. Why does any of us receive Christ as our supreme treasure? If you have, why did you? What are you going to say to answer that question? If God asks you, why did you and not your brother? Why did you and not your father? Or on Mother's Day, most painfully, why did you and not your mother? What will you answer? You were smarter? More spiritual? I don't think so. Beyond the amazing gift of John 3.16 where God offers Himself to the whole world and whoever will believe 
may come and have eternal life. Beyond that is the great love by which we are made to come. Our rebellion is overcome. God's wrath is removed and eternal joy is secured. There is a great love beyond the offer of John 3.16. If you only know the love of John 3.16, there is more for you to know, more for you to enjoy, more for you to admire, more for you to be amazed at, more for you to be thankful for, more for you to be strengthened by and made secure and firm and solid. Oh, for solid, unshakable, undaunted believers in the face of this cultural current carrying the world to perdition. It is not easy to stand today. Those of you who believe on Christ, God wants you to know how you're loved. Not only with the love of John 3.16 by which he offers himself to the world and whoever will may come. He wants you to know yourself loved by a death-conquering, hardness-removing, rebellion-eradicating, sight-imparting, faith-creating, personal, individual, invincible covenant love of which every one of us is totally undeserving. so that you would spend the rest of your days being absolutely amazed that you're alive in Christ. Never one minute taking credit for it. Never one millisecond thinking you raised yourself from the dead. You created faith in your own heart. You inclined your dead and rebellious heart to the cross of Christ. You saw glory in it when once it was boring. No, you will not take credit for that. Oh, please, Christian, don't go there. Don't rob God of the greatness of his love in your life. Know yourself loved in this way, this covenant way. Jesus has a bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This way, he took her. He paid for her. He cleansed her and made her freely his own. My dad, I'm closing, my dad was an evangelist. He was a good evangelist. Preached in every state. He was a little mini Billy Graham. No big 50,000 person stadiums, just 500 people churches and a 50 person church here and a tent meeting there. And he traveled all over the country for 50 years and led more people to Christ than I ever will. And he loved to quote D.L. Moody 
And I saw it's all over the net. It's nothing original here with my dad. It's just he loved to say it, and you can find it. He said, as D.L. Moody used to say, as you enter heaven, on the outside is written, whosoever will may come. And as you walk through the gate into heaven and turn around, written over the gate is chosen from the foundation of the world. That's good. I just would improve on it one way. Daddy, I think that as we walk to the gate, God wants us to read the Gospel of John and know what's there and not wait till we get inside. And what's there is a kind of love that I want you to know. I want you to know yourself so personally chosen, so personally died for, so personally made alive, so personally gifted with faith, so personally inclined from darkness to light. I want you to know this instead of just kind of hovering on the outside thinking, I'm offered, I'm offered, and the rest is me, the rest is me, the rest is me. It's so fragile. So, come to Christ and discover you are loved with an invincible, never-ending covenant love. Did you hear me? Come to Christ and discover you are loved with an ever-ending, invincible covenant love. Let's pray. The wind blows where it wills. We hear the sound of it. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Such are all who are born of the Spirit. Blow, Holy Spirit. Blow in this room. Confirm the calling and confirm the election with your mighty saving power as you Open the eyes of the blind and incline their hearts to Jesus so that freely they do what they love to do. Trust Him. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.